Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate how everything has a history, even the most unexpected of subjects, like lemons, reading and popcorn. Mm. Now, of all of those, Sam, I think I would prefer to do reading, since I know an extraordinary amount about the history of reading. But I think what would challenge us most is, in fact, popcorn or rings, wings and flings, dings, sings and slings. We could do the history of injuries or the history of dents in cars. However, for the moment, (laughs) suffice to say, we will be following (laughs) the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining very carefully indeed how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of poison is in fact all about 18th century shopkeepers, assassination attempts on Queen Elizabeth I. It's all about Roman women who were all poisoners. It's about the history of bread. It's all about Venice, powdered diamonds, weed killer. And, of course, it's all about the history of horticulture. Who knew? Or that the history of buttons... Buttons is in fact all about Robert Louis Stevenson, World War One, General John Joseph Pershing and American military uniforms. It's about Victorian clothing. It's also all about a conversation between the anthropologist Claude Levi Strauss and the French historian Lucien Fevre and nothing less than bodily posture, the art of life and ways of integrating the world, as well as 18th century industry, petitioning and changes in fashion. What a fascinating (laughs) rampage through the past that one was, Sam. And all of that from Buttons. Yes, we have done those episodes. Do please check them out. You're probably wondering who is telling you all of this wonderful information. Let me say of my fellow presenter, if if history... If history? (laughs) If history was a mystery. (laughs) If history was a mystery, let me just say, I will cleverly open up the uh, correct file. Uh, That will help me. If history was a teenager... This man would allow history to sleep in. He would not enforce (laughs) the tidying of rooms or the washing or cleaning of the kitchen. He would be all tolerant, encouraging, kind and patient, as well as an outstanding example of how to misbehave. He is the cool dad of history itself. Professor extraordinaire of early modern British history at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. I love that one. Hello, Sam. I love that one. That's excellent. Uh, Mine is (laughs) is quite pathetic in comparison. Uh, However, the man not sitting opposite me, because we are still choosing to 
record remotely. Well, let's just say if he were a teenager-related historian, he'd only be the Holden Caulfield of history, the quintessentially American teen protagonist of J.D. Salinger's seminal coming-of-age novel Catcher in the Rye. So epic and original is his approach to the past. Yes, it's your friend and mine across town, the famous historical adventurer Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. Um, we are doing teenagers. It's making me feel a bit teenage, actually, even researching this. Um, did you enjoy doing uh, doing some work on this, James? I, t- I did enjoy doing some work on this, and I reminisced about my own teenage years. They were dreadful. Uh, dreadful and brilliant. <laughs> all, in, all, in, all wrapped up in, in, yeah, in, yeah. in different ways. It, I, I'm glad I'm not a teenager. Uh, me too. Now. Oh, I, I, Awful. <laughs> I mean, it was brilliant, but it was the first time I got my heart broken. Uh, terrifying. Mm. And and kind yeah. of, I remember sitting in a room, uh, listening to an Oasis uh, track, just again and again and again <laughs> and again, and just feeling utterly sorry for myself and miserable. And I wouldn't want to relive that. However, as a friend told me at the time, oh, at least you know you're alive. <laughs> Well, yes, there's there's always that. The depth of heartache and being alive. (laughs) Anyway, we digress about teenagers. I I thought it was fascinating. And I have all sorts of ways uh, to think about this. We were thinking, we we decided to do this because we ran out of time in our last episode. Um, Oh, yeah. And I was going to do something on the, the sort of the cult of the American teenager through... Um, through Hollywood and the different sort of cliques of, of teenagers. So that was a sort of starting point, all of those sort of different groups that you have in American high schools. I thought I'd do that and then pick two other completely different topics to do, Sam. So far, so much fun was I having uh, leafing through my bookshelves and <laughs> whizzing around on the internet in search engines. Yeah, I, 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 I was entirely inspired by my own two teenage children. Hmm. Um, and I thought I was thinking of all the many ways that I could uh, use the inspiration of them to think about the past. So um, I, I thought it was the best way of doing it, using, using living, living models to help you understand the past. And um, it struck me that there were, oh, there were definitely two things which had to be considered. And the first was the whole question of the teenage bedroom. What ah. was going on there? Um, and the second is language. Um, there's a real thing going on with language in my house at the minute. Um, and there has been since the kids are about seven. Um, they're very playful, very creative with their own language. Um, and uh, it's kind of changing a bit. So I wanted to think about uh, teenagers and language um, and to uh, sort of think more kind of broadly, maybe theoretically about the whole thing, but to just give you awesome tools which will allow you to take to the past to apply to any period you should so choose. Oh, that sounds good. I too... Uh was thinking about teenage bedrooms. Um, and so I've got a little bit on that. There was a recent exhibition on teenage bedrooms. Did you come across that? Ooh, yes, I think I might well have done. Well, let's get to that in a minute. You, yes. you start, James, on, on something non-bedroomy. Something non-bedroomy. Well, one of the things that I was thinking about was I was thinking about the history of China. And I thought, oh, Sam will probably know an awful lot about this and the Cultural Revolution. And one of the things I was very, very interested in was thinking about the lost generation in China. So this was during the the sort of second half of the 20th century and to look at the plight of millions of urban teenage children who during this period, uh, the Cultural Revolution, um, uh which lasted between 1966 and the mid-70s, they were forced to leave their family homes 
in the cities and to go and work on farms as part of what was uh, an attempt by the Chinese Communist Party to purge itself of bourgeois elements. And broadly, the policy was uh, forced migration to force reckless, feckless, privileged, city-dwelling intellectual youths to learn from working on the land with ordinary peasants and farmers. It was a movement known as the Up to the Mountains and Down to the Countryside movement, and also by many known as the, just simply as the Down to the Countryside movement. And during these years, approximately 17 million youths were sent away from their families. They lost effectively their teenage years, their education, um, and they were sent to rural areas as part of this as this of this movement. Um, and as a result of this policy, this lost generation, which we have today, emerged uneducated and without the right to live with their families. And only recently have first hand testimonies of their experiences come to light. And this is what I'm going to talk a little bit about. I've got some examples. I mean, you'll know far more about Chinese history than I do, Sam, having done so much filming about it. But I think one of the really interesting things reading some of the critical uh, Western uh, studies of this period is the way in which it's very difficult to actually get at an unofficial collective memory of the Cultural Revolution's lost generation. You know, in about the... In, the, in 1981, there was a very brief official version of the Cultural Revolution published by the Communist Party in China. And one of the problems then was that once this orthodox line had been set down, it was very difficult for other unofficial versions to come forward. They didn't have the support, they were suppressed. And you get a series of you get a series of documents sort of released in a sort of in a in an official or semi-official way. And then as generations of people grow grew up, um, they moved into different countries, particularly in, in Hong Kong, Taiwan, the Chinese diaspora as well, you increasingly get a sort of an undercurrent of oral histories or or first-hand written accounts. There are lots of famous writers who experience this period, intellectuals who experience this period and have written about it. Um, but also what you get, strangely, is there are historians who've tried to recover the oral history, but what they encounter also is a conflict between different kinds of memories. And this is explored in a brilliant article that I read um, by uh, a historian called uh, Michel Bonin, uh, and it's called the 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 threatened history um, and collective memory of the Cultural Revolution's lost generation. And one of the points made in this is that it is that when you're doing this archival research in oral history and you're gathering these memories, that there are there are often opposing views of the past. And one of the things that they encounter is this wave of uncritical nostalgia that swept through the, this a large section of this generation in the 1990s. Their objects and and photographs and all of these kinds of things, recalling it in in quite a sort of um, rose tinted way. However, what we have is a number of people who 
have come forward um, and and told their story, told their time. And I want to give you one case study that I found of uh, a person called Hu Rongfen, who is when this was um, when she was interviewed, she was 58 years old. But she describes um, how on the 14th of November 1971, during the height of the Cultural Revolution, as a middle schooler, uh, she was basically sent away from Shanghai, where she lived with her, her parents, to go and live in a remote village in East China's Anhui uh, province to go and work in in the countryside. And it just wasn't because she'd done anything wrong. It wasn't for any sort of you know, misdemeanor. She was a, ostensibly a bright girl. But this was part of what was happening to every urban household, that at least one of their teenage children needed to leave home and go and and um, and work on the farm. It started off this whole process was partly about it was partly a sort of an economic thing. It was to drive up production uh, in the sort of rural countryside, and then it became about about education and about how these people would be almost sort of educated among among the peasants. And she spent a total of four years between nineteen seventy one and nineteen seventy four. In, uh, in a mountainous county, Xinjiang, uh, and it was involved in in you know planting rice and spreading cow dung and and you know collecting and chopping wood and all those sort of you know useful tasks. But we've also got a a, a, a transcript of some of her reminiscences. We were told she writes she says that city dwellers never moved their limbs and could not distinguish different crops. So we were banished to labour and learn skills and grit from peasants. She remembers the luggage that she brought with her. She had sort of basic essentials. She also had a copy of Chairman Mao's theories, The Little Red Book, which was a mandatory uh, volume for everyone. She had notebooks. You know, She took with her um, chapters of banned books as well, Jane Eyre and Anna Karenina that were seen by um, Chinese authorities as, as having sort of you know, capital, dangerous capitalist ideas in them. And she remembers uh, reading these, these, uh, this literature uh, under, under the, the covers uh, at, at midnight. Um, I still can't bear to recall my youth spent on the farm, she says. And one of the one of the most remarkable memories she has is of working in the rice fields in the early spring in freezing conditions with lumps of ice still floating on the water. So her legs would be so cold. She'd have to be there for 10 hours or more. She she just remembers the desperate cold of this. She was covered in leeches. There were wounds that blood was sort of oozing out of. She was in dirty water. You know, she had to walk 40 kilometres along muddy paths. It was windy in order to get to the nearest bus station, in order to go back to Shanghai and, and see her parents. Um, eventually, she is she is allowed to go and study mechanics at a local college. She's elected by her commune uh, to be able to do this. She eventually finds a job after graduation uh, and lives in Hefei, uh, in um, until about 1986, before she moves to her her hometown, where she works in a scientific laboratory as a as a secretary, but she she has sort of severe, um, you know, very dark memories of this period. 
and she she recalls if the cultural revolution came back and i were to be dispatched again i'd rather commit suicide you know, I, you know i stayed awake night after night at the commune worrying if i've ever if i'd ever return to any city after my retirement i seize every opportunity to travel and exercise my body in order to stay healthy I live a happy life now. I want to live every day like I was still in my youth because I was never able to enjoy my teens and 20s, supposedly the best time of one's life. It's for us to act out our feelings towards the path. Together, my comrade sisters and I lived through some unimaginably tough times, learning to live without parents and like peasants. And now we want to live our youth again all together so i mean one of the one of the things is that these harsh living conditions really took their toll on many people of this generation who who suffered considerable loss of life were and and were unable to endure hardships and many died during this period and also there is a, a lasting long-term psychological impact that these policies had on the immeasurable millions of Chinese who simply missed out on their teenage years separated from their home and separated from family and friends so actually a, a rather rather sort of um, dour uh, and sort of downbeat um, sort of look at uh, teenage years in China during the Cultural Revolution, Sam. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes. Until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive & June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive & June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Very good. I very, really, very good. And actually, it's one of the things I've really loved about um, trying to think about teenagers in history is that you know it, it's it's so clear. They're, I think teenagers are so vivid um, just because they've got so much going on in their lives, um, and it, it it must have always been the same. 
Um, and you can really, really apply apply it to all all sorts of periods in the past. And I think applying it to the Cultural Revolution is a seriously good idea. I like the contrast of, um, you know, a period in your lives where you're supposed to be discovering things, you're supposed to be free, you're supposed to, to, to you know, have a load of opportunities ahead of you. But to study that in a in a regime at a time when none of that was possible, I think, would be uh, absolutely fascinating. Good stuff. Um, so I, in contrast... Um, Let's let's talk a little bit about um, teenagers' rooms because so I came across um, well. See, it was a description of an exhibition by um, Adrienne Salinger. Is that the one that you've come across, James? I think it might be. I think it might be. Is ah, okay. it called te- Teenage Bedrooms? Or teenagers and their bedrooms? And it was. Oh no! Uh, this was it, a different. This was a different one. So I, I'll add in oh, a little okay. bit to this. I think. It's a book written in '95, but it was based on a on a exhibition in New York in 1991, um, and that was um, recorded over two years previously. So we're talking about the late '80s. Um, so you know, a significant time ago. I wasn't a teenager then. I was still very young. So if we're assuming they were they were recording and filming these in 87, 88, I would have been about 10 or 11. James, you would have been a teenager. So, um, I'd have been about 30 been... then. I'd have definitely been I'd have definitely been I'd have definitely been a teenager. Yes. A teenager. Um and um the principle behind this is that it's a wonderful moment to capture the development of people particularly in in their pads, in their rooms, and using bedrooms as a source of inspiration for understanding not only teenagers of the past, but um, I think you know humanity in general and the way people think, the way they behave, and and what what how they how they go around gathering things around them and what objects mean to them. I think this is really important for me and James because we do so much about objects um, and emotions as things which can have their own viable history. And uh, if you want to find a source of objects and emotions, one of the best things to do is to walk into any teenager's room and you've got a whole swirling mass of objects which have been gathered for a whole variety of reasons, put on display in a whole variety of ways, and all you know to create a whole variety of meanings. It's like they're kind of they're ultimately challenging and playing historians to try and make sense of exactly what they're doing. Anyway, um, this book and this exhibition is a, is a wonderful collection of teenagers where um, the artist met them in, in shopping malls and just said, I, I don't want you to tidy your room, I don't want you to do anything, but can I just please come round and take a photo of you in your bedroom? Um, and so what you've got here are um, kind of encapsulations of hopes, dreams, fears of the people involved um, the, as historical sources. You've got the, the bodily postures, the haircuts, the clothes, the facial expressions, which I think is completely extraordinary, um, as well as all of the objects which surround them. Um, and it's fascinating that, you know, if you, you 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 think of people maybe trying to glorify youth, um, uh, uh, maybe as I, as I mentioned right at the beginning, saying it's supposed to be a time of freedom and experimentation and stuff, is that when you actually look into the eyes of the people who are living it at the time, then glory is kind of very far from it. It's um, It's more to do with... Um, well, the main themes that were highlighted in this exhibition were confusion, drugs, sex, abuse and racism. So these uh, pictures are uh, quite, quite extraordinary. And let me just give you the title of that again. Um, I think it's just called Teenagers and Their Bedrooms in 1995. I'm looking at um, just a variety of here. There's there's, um, there's a chap who's posing behind a classic photograph, um, classic 
cheeky teenage kids poster of a of a really cool looking kind of rock star with long hair and big aviator glasses. He's got a matching vest on. Um, he's obviously really modelling his look on this guy that he's got on the wall. Um, he's got a weird sort of fish on the wall um, and he's standing very proudly next to an amazing record player. Um, it's got two uh, decks for um, for cassettes, a double cassette deck. You've got a space for uh, an LP on top and a very complicated radio. Um, and he's really encapsulating everything he wants there. Other ones, other other imagery is interesting with their relationship with the past. I'm looking at a picture now here of a girl who's got the most fantastic wild hair. She looks like a Cornish tree. It's the only way I can explain it. Windswept since she was about two. Um, and has got a really big uh, poster of The Who, um, behind her. So they're in the late 80s, but still admiring and respecting what was going on more than a decade before her. And then final description here, I think this chap, um, he's going to love Guns N' Roses when they come around, but it's too early for Guns N' Roses. He he looks like Axl Rose, the lead singer of Guns N' Roses, and his, his walls are completely covered in posters um, of Megadeth. And he's got uh, his shelves, there must be... 300 tiny little kind of figurines uh, from various cartoons there. And I suppose in, uh, more than 50 posters in total, all just behind his desk. Um, so he is, he's got a whole world of inspiration. And um, he is one one guy here who is super delighted to have been photographed. I think he his, this guy's been building up his bedroom for the last 10 years or five years, just so that an artist comes around to take a photograph of him. Um, others, you know, very shy, very nervous. Um, there's one of a of a of a young girl with a cat on her lap, sitting next to a dog, and she's got three hamster cages, uh, or sort of hamster boxes, all around her. Obviously, lives for her animals. Not a single poster anywhere on the walls. So very, very plain indeed. Um, I th- thought it was it was very emotional um, and also very, very inspiring, uh, and and so so useful at helping you work out what themes you might want to consider when 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 studying or thinking about teenagers in the past oh lovely sam i mean i i i came at this in a similar way but sort of had slightly sort of different observations because i think what we've got here is something that is it's very personal to both of us as fathers so we we come at it from that particular point of view but also it's it's situated not only in in contemporary history and popular culture, but also it's the realm of the anthropologist. Um, And one of the things that I noticed during lockdown um, was the way in which my daughters, who are not quite teenagers, are very fast moving towards those teenage years. And I see this spatially within our house. So when they were much younger, they were always very much with us, that centre of attention, and then living over this period, family life became much more atomized, not only with digital or smart devices, things moving online, but also with the spatial movement of the family around the household and the girls gravitating much more towards their bedrooms. And we can see this this function of the bedroom in a much broader historical continuum. I mean, you think about bedrooms, in, you know, just in general, you know, the 
There is a fetishization of the master bedroom with ensuite bathroom, dressing room. It's the sort of suburban must-have for many would-be house buyers fed on a on an aspirational diet of luxury, romance and a desire for time alone. Yet, if you think about it, the study of sleeping habits across the centuries shows that in actual fact, communal sleeping, in other words, sleeping together was by far the most widespread practice. So think here of Charlie Bucket's sets of grandparents, you know, sharing a sharing a double bed in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or the well-known nursery rhyme, there were 10 in a bed. It was extremely common for all kinds of people to share beds. Families might occupy the same bed, the same room. Servants would sleep on pull-out pallets in master's and mistress's room. And there's nothing unusual about, you know, two male servants in a household sharing a bed. For many, a bed of one's own, let alone a bedroom, is a relatively modern phenomenon for all except the most wealthy. And it's only with the rise of solitary sleeping arrangements and personal bedrooms that actually we see the separation of the family unit. And this is epitomised, I would argue, Sam Willis, by the teenage bedroom, which is a private space for withdrawal, the walls of which are a canvas for emerging pubescent identities. Now, this leads me to, you know, thinking about uh, teenage bedrooms. I didn't see that uh, that book or that exhibition uh, that was from the 80s in New York. I it's, I saw something that was very much more modern. Uh, it was an online exhibition in 2016, and it was create, curated by uh, a doctoral researcher at the Centre for the Studies of the Home, somebody called Carrie Newsom. And the, the photography was done by, um, by Kaina Gurley, who is described as a visual anthropologist. So there's a different really different lens here. It was put on at the Geoffrey uh, Museum. And what it did was it, it looked at the rooms, the bedrooms or sleeping quarters of 26 different teenagers. And what it was interested in was exploring themes of identity and memory and friendship of that sort of, of this sort of um, social media uh, generation. And I think one of the things that that sort of comes across it is the is the variety the enormous sort of variety of identities across these sort of teenage rooms also the um i think also it's the sense that the rooms themselves are really fascinating you know some of them are you know they've got all sorts of posters and scribblings and drawings and all sorts of things that you that you were describing um, and the, the researcher describes them almost like sort of magpie like youngsters but also sees the kids themselves as mini curators of their spaces so you know the things that they put up the process that they go through the way in which they're fashioning out an identity tells you an enormous lot about them there's one there's one picture of a room uh, which is a uh, just a really um, bold grey door and then across it is like that sort of like that crime scene investigation tape uh, that you see with just the words stop 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 you know so it's basically a teenage zone and you know nobody is allowed to go in there um, so it's sort of it's demarcating it the other phenomenon that I 
that I was struck by was the um, was the concept of the floor robe. <laughs> um, so so not not a wardrobe, but in fact a That's floor robe. Absolutely drobe brilliant. Where clothes would just be cast all over the floor, and and they, I, and I think the same practice was used here as in your uh, you know nineteen eighties New York exhibition where. The teenagers were told not to tidy up beforehand. Uh, some of them had, but many of them, you know, the, you were seeing this kind of in situ. This was this was them sort of un un sort of photoshopped. Um, so I think I think the um, you know the teenage the teenage bedroom as a as a site. When I think about my own teenage bedroom, um, uh, it was uh, <laughs> it frankly a mess. Um, and I and I have a very vivid I have very very vivid memories of it, uh, including coming home one night after celebrating my um, my GCSE exams. Uh, I was far too young, uh, uh, and I remember walking into my walk-in wardrobe, uh, thinking it was the bathroom. Um, so I, it was a yes, it's a strange experience. <laughs> Do you remember much about your own teenage years, Sam? No, I've I've a shockingly bad memory of my life. Um, oh. I I just re- really very very poor. It's like a family joke. Um, and no, um, no, I don't. <laughs> Basically, I can. Um, amount of time I spent in my room uh, it was full of guitars primarily. Uh, <laughs> Excellent. Uh, yeah. So anyway, just briefly, we've been going on very very well here. Um, just want to talk about the language of teenagers because the, the language is something that's really. Uh, my, my kids are constantly changing the way they speak, um, and there are new phrases, often from I think, I think inspired by social media. There are so many vines and things going around that they adopt catchphrases constantly. And at the same time, if I ever say something wrong, uh, they will then, or, or that's dated or stupid, I am then that phrase, whatever it might be. Uh, I made the mistake of saying I had a pash for something, but it was an ironic thing, but it wasn't taken as an ironic thing. And that uh, your your words are then taken like a stick and you are beaten with them repeatedly and constantly for months at a time just for making a small linguistic error in what is cool and what is not cool. Um, now, um, I came up with a wonderful, uh, wonderful article about someone researching a teenage language. It's quite interesting how, how they went about it. This is in 2011, a decade ago. But they... they um, that's when they did the research, but they, they were looking at an earlier period. And the first thing they did was to look at um, all sorts of written materials aimed at teenagers. So lots of uh, fantastic 80s uh, teenage magazines, Sugar, Bliss, Shout, Mmm's, It's Hot, Alternative Press, 17, Cosmo Girl, Oh Boy, and so on. So there's a whole load of written material you can get into. But then she used something called the Cult Corpus, C-O-L-T. It's part of the British National Corpus, the BNC. It was compiled in '93. And it consists of 431,528 words from a total of 377 spontaneous conversations produced by teenagers between the ages of 13 and 17 in the London area. And it comprises about 55 hours of recorded speech. So some really fantastic material out there to get your get your teeth stuck into. And... Um, she went on and analysed the language in a very complex way, but one of the things that I really enjoyed was there was a high frequency of negatives in teenage language. The amount of times they use ain't, isn't, aren't, hasn't, haven't, don't, doesn't, didn't, can't, won't, shan't, shouldn't, wouldn't or mightn't. 
um, were, were um, noticeably of a higher frequency than adults. Uh, there was also a list of um, uh, insults and, and, and swear words used by teenagers at the period. Uh, Chiefer, I quite liked. C-H-I-E-F-E-R, I'd not heard before. And Peanut Head. <laughs> which I really enjoyed. Um, Kids also at that time were using um, a huge number of vague words, which I thought was fascinating about trying to find your own way in the world and not quite having the language to describe things. So lots of um, thingies or loads of or a bit of or stuff or something. Um, And she went on to analyse that to compare it with vague words used by adults, which is more things like thingamibob, thingybob, what's his name and thingamajig certainly at the time. So um, I really enjoy that. And I certainly recognise that with my kids, you know, they'll, they kind of know what they mean to say, but they don't know the word for it. And um, they get the sense across without being, um, you know, uh, razor sharp in their use of language. A watching me digit. A watching me digit. Yeah, that's very good. Um, uh, so anyway, I, I love that. And I particularly liked a story I came across related to this. And um, it's about trying to infiltrate a kind of closed community of language. What I enjoyed about this was my kids beating me up with my use, my ill use of the word pash. Um, and this mm-hmm. was from 1992, a New York Times story about grunge slang. And they sent in a recorder to go uh, to a, a record label and interview a 25-year-old in Seattle about their use of language. And um, they all knew that the reporter was coming and they didn't take it seriously <laughs> at all. And so basically made up a load of language, um, including the words wax slacks, which I really liked, and lame stain, which is another really, <laughs> really, really, really good one. So um, when you come to studying language, beware that you can be entirely manipulated. But the point is, is that, you know, kids are doing it now in a very developmental period of their lives and... Um, I'm quite certain that if you applied that to pretty much any period of history, you'd have a really, really fascinating uh, dive down into the past. So what are what are the kids? What are the kids saying that's hip now using a sort of 1970s thing? What, yeah, what's uh, what's what's cool? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm deliberately not going to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> no, you must. You must. No, no I, I, I don't know. It's, um Epic. Actually, I, Everything's epic, isn't it? Epic, epic. That's uh, sort of sort of what I get, but mine are, mine are a bit younger. Well, I get a huge variety, basically. For my daughter speaks entirely differently to my son as well. Right. Um, and uh, I have some public school slang here for you, uh, yeah. which sort of exists. I'm going to test you on this. Okay, what's a banco? I haven't got a clue. Homework. Uh, a beak. I haven't got a clue. Teacher. Uh, big side. Uh, means the the first first fifteen rugby team, um, a, a college pig, <laughs> is a school prefect. A dame is a matron. A div is a lesson. Don is a teacher. A dry bob is a pupil who plays cricket. A ducker is a swimming pool. An ecker ecker we're going for ecker uh, is sport or exercise. Grubbies means a school shop. Hash means lesson at Charterhouse, apparently. A jam account means a a pupil's account at a school shop. Jerks, it refers to punishment. Um, On fatigues means punishment schedule of reporting in and doing chores. Um, uh, Pups, uh, prefects. Um, What else have we got? Rip 
the tear a teacher makes in a poor piece of work. Shag is a pupil's own clothes. Shell is a new boy. Uh, show up is a good piece of work. A slack bob uh, is a pupil who does neither. Um, uh, who does does poor work. Uh, station is an afternoon of sport. The master is the headmaster. The, the pink roll is a list of all pupils and staff. Toshers uh, means showers. Toy time uh, at Winchester College uh, means uh, evening prep period. Up school at Winchester School. Oh, sorry, at Westminster School means the main hall. Um, and a wet bob is a pupil who rows. Hmm. How like ripping. Having language, language at schools. Um, full stop. That's also interesting. Anyway, there we go. There's some teenage thoughts for you all. I hope you've enjoyed that. Um, and, uh, you know, think about what period in history and location in history you would like to know the most about teenage life. Um, I hope you've enjoyed that very much. Do please follow us on social media. I'm on Twitter at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history, please listen to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. And I'm on Twitter at James Daybell. The podcast is on at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram, so you can check us out there we are also on facebook uh, we have a beautiful website uh, excellent website uh, histories of the unexpected.com and we also have a patreon page if you're feeling uh, if you're feeling generous um, in these these tough times uh, anything you can give to help support our, our historical researchers would be very much appreciated indeed i think we're back with spaghetti aren't we sam we are can't wait to do it cheers guys ciao Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.